Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti Ecruel Dubai. Welcome to the Luck on Sunday podcast, a weekly audio digest of all the best bits of Luck on Sunday, free to air every Sunday from nine o'clock that brings you the best guests and insight from around the racing world. Uh, Nicky Henderson is going to be a man who is leading the news agenda today, understandably yeah. enough, after the, the defection of Altior from the, from the Tingle Creek. Right, let's hear from Nicky Henderson. This is what he said to Lydia Hislop last night. Now, Nicky Henderson has kindly come over for a chat right at the end of racing today at Sandan, and uh, it's been a, a difficult day, I think, for lots of different reasons. Should we start by talking about Altior? I think everybody on Racing TV will have read your explanation uh, that you put on Twitter, read what was on the Racing Post. Um, I suppose what some people are wondering is, um, you knew it, you've got a, he a healthy fit horse, you, it was a grade one race, you knew it wasn't going to be a guinea. The ground is soft, it's not... It's, oh, it's not, heavy. It's soft on times, according it's, to you. It is heavy. OK, we differ there. And, um, you know, this is a grade one. Yeah. And, you know, it's three months until the championship. And I'm chase. looking after the horse. That's my job. Mm, I know it is, I know it is. But I suppose people are wondering, given those things, why we can't see him three months before the championships, if you're saying... Because I'm going to take a different route. He's going to go to Kempton via the Desert Orchid. And so people will be able to see him at Kempton, which they wouldn't be able to see if they'd seen him here today. He hates this ground. He takes a lot out of him, whatever he does. You saw what happened at Ascot last year. I said then I should never have run him. Did. Because I'll get lynched. I've done that, and you have tried to kill me. Luckily, there are some sensible people out here who totally and utterly agree with what I've done. OK? Now, the horse comes before anything else, and his well-being, his welfare, is the only thing I care about. I love racing. I've been in it quite a long time. And I do it because I love it, and I've all the admiration for all the people that get involved in it. I know they want to see Altior. I want to see him. I wanted to run him. Pat and Christopher Pugh wanted to run him. We chatted and went through it all last night. And Nico and I left here under no illusions that we knew we didn't want to run. And I can tell you what, the JP, who's the most realistic person when it comes down to horses and looking after them. And I very often have to ring him halfway through the day if I'm not happy about the ground. If I ask him, JP, I'm not happy about the ground, it might be too soft, it might be too firm, he'll say, Nicky, if you ask the question, you know the answer. That was not what Altior likes going on. He would not like it. It was heavy, sticky. The hurdle course is very, very soft. And at the chase heavy. course, there's a nice bit down the back, but that's all. He does not go in it. He probably win in it, but he doesn't go in it. It's what the damage will do to him. And I'm not prepared to do that. 
Looking... I wouldn't even try and run him this week. I'm going to try and persuade them. Now, the Peterborough Chase has been abandoned tomorrow at Huntington. Two or three years ago, it was moved to Taunton. If they'd like to move the Peterborough Chase to Taunton, where the ground is good, I'd run him. Well, I'd certainly think about it, but I have got others in there, I must admit. Two and a half miles again? Two, two miles, three and a half, to be exact, uh, round Taunton. Taunton. Mm. Well, that's going to be an awful lot easier than going round here, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think that the, the, there, are, there are so many different facets of this particular case. Um, first of all, it's clear in many trainers' minds, including Nicky Henson's, that Cheltenham is the priority. There was a, uh, a quote, I think, from Friday night, which wasn't disputed, which is, there's only one race that matters, and that's at Ch or the, the, the race that matters is at Cheltenham in March. Now, Nicky Henderson has become Britain's winning most trainer at the Cheltenham Festival for two, there are two main reasons. One is that he's an exceptional trainer, and the other is that he prioritises the Cheltenham Festival. Now, in terms of the, the withdrawal of, the, of, of Altior with regard to the ground, there was obviously lots of discussion on social media about what the ground actually was and whether this would indeed not be suitable for Altior. In this instance, the trainer is going to take the word of his stable jockey, isn't he? They are a partnership, they mm -hmm. trust each other, they work mm -hmm. together every day. If Nico de Boinville... Who's, uh, it, who, you know, is a, a very bright and eloquent guy, says, I don't like the ground. It's, it's been rained on very heavily. It's cloying. It's cloggy. He won't like it. Then any... And I'm going to broaden this out. Any trainer will listen to the stable jockey over maybe experts on, on race times whom they don't know. And there's a very obvious reason for that, in that if Altior were to run and were to be beaten and his season were thrown out of kilter, the stable jockey would say, well, I, I did say, but you took the word of someone on social media who is a timing expert. Until that timing expert is on the staff at a stable, be it Seven Barrows or somewhat, somewhere else, the trainer will take the word of the stable jockey. Mm. So that's the th that's i hope i've given my opinion on on the the, the arguments about the grounds Nicky Henderson also feels that he's got previous... So let me just clarify time. that. You're not necessarily agreeing with his view of the ground. You are just saying you can understand his, oh, his thought process. Uh, absolutely. And, yeah. I, and, and, I, and I don't agree with the description, uh, Nicky Henderson's description of heavy, because Andrew Cooper is, if there is a more experienced or better respected clerk of the course in Britain than Andrew Cooper... I've not met them. And so I'm, I'm happy to put my, my belief in his going description as it was given yesterday. I think that when Nicky Henderson described the going as heavy, I think he actually meant cloying and cloggy rather than heavy in the conventional sense that a clerk of the course would right. give the ground. That's my belief. Right. So also there's a, Altior has previous that... Uh, last, in November of last year, he ran in the Ascot Chase. Nicky Henderson felt that, in hindsight, he shouldn't have run. He also felt that he didn't really have... It wasn't really in his gift to withdraw the horse because of the, uh, the build-up to the race of, of Altior versus Surname. Um, a couple of other things. It shows us 
how Cheltenham has become this tyrant that dominates the whole of the jump seasons in Britain and in Ireland. That it starts in September. Racing TV has a hugely popular programme with Lydia Hislop and Ruby Walsh where they discuss the prospects of horses going forward. You only have to look on social media to see how well received and how popular that programme is. But it ain't the road to Punterstown, which we show. It ain't the road to Aintree. Go on an, an odds comparison site now and see if you can get a price for a horse for the four-year-old anniversary novices hurdle. Because you won't get one because it's all about Cheltenham. A few years ago, when they... when the the flat season in Britain seemingly needed the British Champion Series, which, by the way, no one understands. And I'm not talking about Champions Day, which I think is very good. British Champion Series was there to help the narrative. British flat season's got a very good narrative. It starts with the guineas. You don't say... Um, Kamiko is 3-1 to favourite after winning the Guineas at Newmarket yesterday. We say Andrew Balding corrected a 50, righted a 50-year wrong. His father never won the Guineas. He has now. And lower down, you say he's the 3-1 to favourite for the Derby. So the, 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 the narrative of the jump season in Britain is so lopsided, so Cheltenham-heavy, it's a miracle that it can stay on its feet. Um, Couple of, one other thing, welfare. We must, and, and this, is not, this is not a dig at Nicky Henderson, I can't be clearer about this. This is a general, because he's not the only one who uses welfare in a, in a broader sense than we should do. Let's keep the use of the word welfare to its narrowest sense, by which we mean a, horse's, a horse would be imperiled, of, it would be in danger of injury if we were to run it today not unsuited by the ground well being might, yeah. mm. might throw its uh, season out of kilter and the reason for that is that racing's opponents can seize on that and we can hand them not a stick but a big heavy club with which to beat the sport if for example let's take this away from Altior we've got a horse who needs soft ground right mm -hmm. it's good ground it's right bang in the middle of the spectrum of the going spectrum but the trainer in in question deems that it's too quick for their horse that needs soft ground so that horse is declared a non-runner on grounds of welfare racing's opponents then take that that broad pulling down that definition of welfare to mean well-being don't like it he didn't get an ice cream etc and they can say right well well done to him he pulled his horse out on welfare grounds what about the trainers of the other 118 runners don't they care about uh, equine welfare so that is very important because the more that we as racing as a sport use welfare in that very broad definition pulling its meaning down we are taking steps down a very dangerous and difficult road. One more thing, that, that if, uh, the, the, I personally would have spoken to the press on Friday to, to, for management expectation, and I'd said, look, I'm not 100% sure this horse is gonna run, and I probably would have left the decision until Saturday morning. But those are, those are uh, insignificant points. The main thing that comes out of this is Welfare with the ground. I was in. I, I, I was in bed with Jenny Pittman's autobiography. Well, I was uh, slightly concerned about night. where you were going there. 
it's a family show. Um, I was in bed with Jenny Pittman's autobiography last night, and one chapter is about the 1998 Grand National. Mm. When she runs Now Then Lad, doesn't her, she's walking the course the morning of the race with Dave State, her partner, and her boot goes into a hole. Now, she doesn't want to run the horse, but she's aware that there will be a bit of a storm if she pulls now then lad out. So she says to, to uh, Rodney Farrant, go around the outside, stay out of trouble. And she says, the horse actually fell, but she describes it as an unseat in the book. And she says, I've never been so glad to see a horse unseat his rider as now then lad. She wrote a letter to the Aintree executive and this was leaked to the Telegraph. But the reason I tell this story is that that was a case of wanting to withdraw a horse because of the ground on welfare welfare grounds because she thought this is not and that's a re if we take nothing else from this at all we have to take that distinction because it's hugely hugely important luck on sunday proudly sponsored by albasti Equiworld dubai Okay, let's have a look at the race itself and victory of Politolog. You know, this is the horse that was left with the race at his mercy, theoretically, but it was satisfying in many senses, if you're a fan of top-class horse racing, to see him do what he did. Yeah, it really was, and, and I'm sorry that it's now nearly 20 past nine, and, and this is the first time we've discussed this really admirable you know this he's he's emblematic of the horse who uh, of the type of horse that makes national hunt racing what it is um it, he's a he's a blue collar horse this isn't it he he rolls his sleeves down he tries really hard afterwards i think there were two interesting things paul nichols said he's not masterminded and he's not what other exceptional two milers? Well, Corto Star won this twice. Yeah, he's not Corto Star. Not, yeah, he didn't. I don't think he mentioned Twist Magic, but he said he's not Corto Star. He's not masterminded, but he wins. Uh, he's very good, and he wins often, and that's what you want. He also said, and this is something that I think often is lost with uh, Paul Nichols, is his art as a trainer. We talk about him as being a great placer of horses, etc. But he said that um, they had changed this horse's training routine and you know we see the result there that he won the race in 2017 and three years on he wins it in that style remarkable but there was of course an intriguing subtext to this and that is uh, Nichols and what Nichols wanted and he craved a, a match with Altior which he didn't get this is what he said to Lydia yeah very satisfied um, we knew he'd had him really well um, I think he's probably as good as he's ever been. It's the fact that we've just done things a bit differently. Where he's in a great place with himself. He's still full of enthusiasm, as you can see today. And credit to him and credit to everyone who's got him right. He was massively up for it. Guillotine just looked like a threat at the pond, and yeah. then he just cracked because yeah. Politolo went on yeah. again. Just as Harry Cobden said, he, he just wasn't quite good enough. He's run a blinding race. He's improved again from, you know, from this time last year when he ran at Askin, a novice handicap, and he's run well. And he will still keep improving him. One day the gap will close. He's only six, so. Um, but on the day, he wasn't good enough. Presumably, you're working back from defending his crown yeah, at Cheltenham. Yeah, yeah um, you know, now he's in such good shape. I just said to John, it, it, chances are he will go straight to Cheltenham. But if he comes out of this really well, it's a long way till Cheltenham. I might just look at the Clarence House. It's very unlikely to go straight to Cheltenham. You like well, we to did, play. We did last year, but, but he, he ran in this race and bled last year and then needed a bit of time off and to get him right. Today, I'd say he's, he was bouncing going out of here. So if he's OK, 
and John and everyone's in agreement and we're happy with him. We might look at the Clarence House and there's a nice gap to Cheltenham because while he's in good form, just as well use it. And you think, feel the key is his freshness as well, he's got to this that, age? That's... But also the change in routine and what we do with him to get the best out of him. We've done a lot of different things that have got him where he is and that, that just works for him and I think that's made a massive difference. And are you frustrated that you didn't have Altior here today because you have been yeah, so yeah, up with it, yeah. up for it all week? Yeah, yeah, in lots of ways we were because... Um, you know, the last time they met, there was a length and a quarter between them and the champion chase. And I think we're a lot better now than we were then. And I think we're probably at our best in Altior. It had a few questions to answer a little bit. Um, and yeah, it would have been nice here for everybody if he was even in one hell of a good race. Mm. Um, but of course, he wasn't here now. And so it'll be, oh, well, Altior wasn't there. And, but, you know, to win races, they've got to run. They've got to perform. And no excuses for us. We did the job nicely. And um, if he'd have been here, we may have beaten him, we may have been second to him, but we were in a hell of a horse race and we might get a crack another day. But well, um, I certainly wouldn't be scared of him. And you know, they've obviously got a few little issues, otherwise he, he would have run today. Because, you know, to be honest with you, two years ago the ground was as soft, if not softer than it was today, and he won. Um, so uh, quite what's going on, I don't know. But he, he must have some issues because Nick is a positive guy. He, all week he's been positive and all week he was dying to beat us because we would have been positive, you know, a little bit of gamesmanship. And... Um, he wasn't here, and it's a shame for racing he wasn't here really, but look, we don't mind. We've, we've turned up with a very fit and fresh and well horse who's done the job very nicely, and that's what it's all about. Yes, you have to win races, yeah. don't you, with race yeah. horses? Yeah. Well, they don't mean, just give you we, them. We, we like getting stuck in and running. Sometimes we get our head bitten off, but you know, we, we do tend to get on and run them, yeah. And if you're going to tell me that you don't find the little bit of needle and the human angle of this race and its aftermath interesting, then you're not telling me the truth. It's definitely made the whole setup and the whole season domestically a bit more compelling, Dave. Absolutely. And we see this in every other sport, but in horse racing relatively very rarely, don't we? That, that there is, uh, that, that relations publicly are always kept very polite. And, you know, when you, when you say, when you ask a question to a trainer about someone else's horse, mm. what's the stock reply? Well, I don't talk about other people's horses. Mm. Well, that's a rule that's been broken there, isn't it? But Nichols's front foot nature yesterday was was very, um, very uh, absorbing. Well, they're both they're both absorbing in in very different ways. Those two, in that uh, Nichols is more front foot. He's more bludgeon. Henderson is more eloquent, more the rapier, and they're, they're, they're an excellent uh, foil to each other. We're only in the start of December. Yeah, we are. This is going to be a, an interesting narrative, if you want to use that word again, to, to run through the season. The man who had a wonderful day yesterday was Harry Skelton. He rode a brace of grade ones. He's on the line now. Harry, good morning. Good morning, Nick. Well, Politolog certainly delivered. You heard what Paul Nichols said there. Uh, what was he like to ride yesterday? Uh, he's a thrill to ride. Um, obviously, I've ridden him twice now, and he's um, he's won twice, so, um, but he's a thrill to ride around there. Um, you know, it, it, it couldn't have gone any better. And we talked in the middle of the week, and yeah, everyone had heard what Paul had said about the fact that he'd got him fresh and he'd got him well, and he was longing to take on Altior. When you rode him yesterday, did he did he give you the feel that he he'd he was a better horse than he had been at, at Cheltenham on Champion Chase Day? Yeah, like the ground at Cheltenham, um, you know, was very, very testing. Um, you know, yesterday he was, uh, you know, at the start of his season, he was a fresher horse, but um, you know, Paul was always very confident that he, he had um, he had had him in great shape, and Hannah, who rides him, has been very, you know, very happy with him as well. So 
I sat on him a couple of times before yesterday, and um, you know he he, um, he felt like a six-year-old really. Um, he's an amazing horse. He he really enjoys what he does, and um, you know yesterday um, he um, he didn't feel like a like a horse you know about to turn another year older anyway. So can we get the definitive steer from your point of view as to what the ground actually was on the chase course yesterday? Yeah, look, I thought it was soft. Um, it was a bit better in places down the back straight. There was a fresh line on the inside from the pond fence. Um, it suits him. You know, he, he handles pretty much any ground. So, um, you know, fr from our point of view, we were happy. How, did, how do you think the race would have panned out if Altior had been there? Uh, I'd like to think, you know, he he, um, he would have taken a good horse to beat him yesterday. Um you know, and the one sort of thing is, Politolog, he, he, um, you know, he wears wears his heart and sleeve. He goes from the front, and he's a very hard horse to get by. Um, you know, so who, who knows what would have happened? But um, you know, the form that he went into the race and the, the performance he put up, um, it certainly would have taken um, a horse that was bringing their A game to the track. Are you quite up for a for a match up now? Yeah, yeah, massively. So you know, I think. You know, Paul is, is a very positive man, and um, you know, I'd like to think that um, we were spending a long few years there. Me and Dan, it's, it has rubbed off, <laughs> rubbed off a bit of us on on onto us. And um, yeah, I mean, you've got to take, you know, you got to, you can't run away from what's put in front of you. So hopefully, we'll take him on one day and and uh, give it a good go. But um, yeah, he's won two Grade Twos for me, and um, you know, added another two to Paul's tally. So. Um, yeah, he's been in a marvellous horse, really. And you had two grade ones yesterday, not just Politolog, but, but All Mankind as well. All Mankind was brilliant in the Henry VIII. You had six horses in here, or five horses in here. They'd run eight times between them in novice chases. They'd, they'd won eight, all eight of those races. And it was, this was just a, a joy to watch. You'd had to improvise as well, because after Cheltenham, first time out of the season, you went straight over fences and he won at Warwick and then he came and won here. Is that something else that you've, you've sort of acquired, if you like, from, from the Nichols Academy, that ability to think on your feet and say, right, plan A is not quite right, let's get to plan B and get there quickly? Yeah, well, he's, uh, as you look at him like physically, he, he's quite a sort of finished horse um, physically. Um, he hasn't, you know, he won't be growing at all and um, he, is, he is definitely... Um, at, you know, I'd say he, he's definitely at his best. He can get better with experience, but physically he won't get any better. So, you know, we had to look to do something after Cheltenham. But I, just, you know, me and Dan sort of felt after Cheltenham that maybe he just lulled us a little bit into thinking he was a bit straighter than he was. He come fit to us off the flat last year, um, and um, you know we did an awful lot with him, um, you know, schooling and um, you know, so maybe at Cheltenham he just needed it, but. You know, a lot of the, you know, plenty of credit must go to Tim uh, Gridley, who, who partnered him with his dad. And he said, lads, you know, why not jump the fence and have a crack and see how it goes? And to be honest, I, I, I thought, <laughs> you must be mad, Tim. But, um, you know, when we started schooling him, he, he was okay. Um, the more he does, the keener he gets at home. He just, you know, again, he, he likes to run on and get on with things. and. Um, he'd been okay at home, but he went to Warwick and on a bit better ground. He was, you know, he was very good. Um, he jumped great, and um, again yesterday, you know, it's a big test around there, um, and he, you know, he was he was perfect again. Do you think you'd ever be able to take that hood off? We took it off at Cheltenham. Yeah. Um, we took it off at Cheltenham, and um, 
look, you know, Dan just thought we'll put it back on. Why not? And um, look, you know, you you sort of think, well, when are you, when are you going to take that off? But if it ain't fixed, you know, if it ain't broken, don't you don't need to fix it. So yeah, it'll be staying on. It does seem to work very well. Were you able to have a, a small socially distanced celebration last night? Uh, um, it, um, it, it it was a quiet night, and um, <laughs> we, we'll enjoy it hopefully um, when we can. And um, it was a little celebration, but nothing too crazy. Um, you know, it, it means like uh, you know I, I enjoyed yesterday, and you know celebrations are something that um, everyone who who is involved in the horses sh- you know should should get to do, and we'll. We'll do it when we can, and um, there's a lot of people that are involved with these horses, and you know it means an awful lot. And um, I hope they, you know, they really got the kick out of it that I did yesterday, and um, we'll enjoy it when we can. And hopefully, COVID's behind us all. Uh, Harry, uh, just finally, wh- when are we likely to see all mankind again? Um, I think Dan's quite keen. Um, we'll go to Warwick probably for the Kingmaker, um, and then make a decision where we go after that. So. And that's when he's most likely to be out next. Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti at Cruel Dubai. Let's talk about Aintree and the star of the show there, Violion Rouge, in the Beecher Chase. This was a, a wonderful performance from a horse who's been around here so many times. You can see there in the green colours with the red cross belts, the colours of Caroline Tisdall. This is a horse who was completing his ninth round of the Grand National Fences, no semblance of an error, and the fences and the demands of Aintree took some jumping yesterday. Yeah, they did, um, and this horse just knows how to jump them, doesn't he? This, as you say, this was his ninth go at the fences. How many, how many has he jumped now? Is it 232, somebody, somebody calculated. Right. It's pretty amazing. I think I, I came up with a, a different and no doubt incorrect figure in today's Sunday Mirror. Um, but uh, it's certainly 200 plus, which takes a bit of doing, doesn't it? He's a remarkable horse. It's, 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 a, shame that, it's, it's a shame that the evidence is that four and a quarter miles stretches him, doesn't mm. it? Because if only he had that stamina, he'd be such a a wonderful horse in the big race in April. But that that cannot uh, denigrate his achievements over these fences. They still take some jumping. They're, it's a wonderful spectacle, and this horse does it better than anybody. I thought Kimberlite Candy in the JP Stocks, who's just fading now, ran a nice trial for the National. I mean, Connections really wouldn't have wanted to win this, I don't think, because he'd have gone up. And they don't really want him to go up, and he is an extreme stayer. Yes. So I think, given the fact that he's had a little taste and went well round them, I think he's an interesting prospect for the National. But this horse, the Leon Rouge, it was his day. It's not all about what is to come. It's about now. And he was winning it four years after his first victory, two years after his runners-up spot in it. Caroline Tisdall owns the horse. She joins me on the line now. Caroline, congratulations. I mean, what is it like to own a horse like this? Fantastic. Thank you so much, Nick. Um, watching it again, I'm going to burst into tears again. Um, it, it's just business of the longevity of national hunt horses, isn't it? When you get a horse like that uh, who wins in 2016 and comes back four years later, it's quite extraordinary. And I suppose you've learned to manage your expectations a bit as he gets a, a little bit older, but did you go into yesterday's race believing it was possible? Um, I would have said no. But then 
when I really reflect honestly, I had rather a large bet on him, so I must deep down have thought it would be all right, you know. So what, what made you have the large bet on him? Uh, <laughs> foolish optimism, which is what makes you be a, a national hunt owner, isn't it? <laughs> do, you, do you always back your horses? Lost you. Do you always back your horses, Caroline? Is it? I mean, no, I, no, I don't always back them. Um, Nick, can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you, Caroline. I've got you. Okay. No, I don't always always back them, but I enjoy I enjoy a bet. Um, I'm I'm a great defender of you know measured betting. Um, I think it's an important part of the the whole uh, game, as Tom doesn't like it being called. Well, um, but but to go back to the the victory of Fionnion Rouge at Aintree, he's, he is, as everybody now knows, the Aintree specialist, and he, he puts on a special Aintree face. He measures up those fences. He, 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 he jumps them in a quite prissy way. He puts his front legs close together, absolutely straight, and lands and goes on without, without pausing. It's, it, it's something he's developed. Uh, both Tom and Connor yesterday, who gave him such a great ride, have said, you know, he, he is the master of the course, that horse. It's quite extraordinary. When you, when you first sort of really began to, to invest quite heavily in, in national hunt racing, Caroline, what were, what were your aims? What did you want out of the sport? <laughs> a very simple, Nick. And uh, A.P. McCoy used to say, I'm rather a simple soul for it. I want to win the Grand National. And yeah, this horse has run round Aintree nine times. He started favourite for a Grand National before. And when you look at yesterday, you think, well, surely he'd stay. Surely he'd stay four and a half miles. But whatever it is, the demands of the different races just seem not to quite, not to quite fit in perfectly. What's your take on it? Well, you, you kind of cast a little shadow on the whole thing just now, just before I came on, by mentioning that Kimberlite perhaps didn't want to win, you know, suggestion. Mm -hmm. No, I, I didn't. Now, uh, no, listen, I've got to clarify this. I didn't mean that in any, you know, the clear, he was clearly no, there no, doing no, his no, best. No, I was just saying no, that it might, it might suit him very well to, yeah, yeah. to have run well in defeat yesterday because his mark won't go up for a race in, in which he'll be yeah, very well we're, suited. Nick, we're all grown up here, so we know what we're talking about. Um, <laughs> and that, the Grand National is a different race, obviously. Uh, Connor did say that he was running on as if he could go round again which, um, you know, the, the, the doubt with Red Lion has always been his stamina right at the end from the canal on. And uh, yesterday he seemed to be saying, oh, never mind that, I'll go around again if you want. But it wasn't the Grand National, and the opposition were not the Grand National horses, were they, to be honest. I'm not taking anything away. I'm, I'm over the moon, you know. To, to win the beaches twice is just incredible. So, what's he going to do between now and April? Um, I haven't had the discussion with David yet. Um, we're going to talk about it maybe later today and then again later in the week when we see how he's come out of it. Uh, um, <laughs> entry is the dream. Uh, everything else in between sort of lines up to that. You've been talking about Cheltenham, but entry is my dream. And it's a dream we'd all share. There wouldn't be a more popular winner, Caroline, that's for sure. I mean, he's been 
utterly amazing round there, and um, I can't wait to see whether he whether he can excel now in a in a Grand National itself. Caroline, thanks for chatting to me this morning. Well done. Okay, thank you very much. Bye, Nick. Professor Caroline Tisdall. Um, I also, Dave, am a fan of measured measured betting, measured law responsible professor. betting. Um, <laughs> no, I think I think a professor in art history. Oh, indeed, yes. Yes. Uh, yes. Uh, as, we, as we all are, yeah, we're all fans of measured betting. Um, I don't really know what to say <laughs> to add to what I said before. Has uh, the wind been taken out of your sails, Dave? Bit, yeah. I tipped Kimberlite candy for the virtual national uh, in April. <laughs> he didn't win it. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, well, I, the, the, the stamina, the, there is a stamina issue with Vieux-Léon Rouge for the big one, which must frustrate those who love him dearly. But just what a, what a sight he is going over uh, the... National obstacles. It was a it was a great win, and as uh, Professor Tisdall said, to we, we talked about Politologue coming back from 2017 to win a, the same race in 2020. Well, Vieux Leon Rouge beat that by 12 months. Okay, the um, many clouds chase yesterday was won by Lakeview Lad. It was the second big staying chase won in a week by a horse in the Trevor Cummings colours. How he won, having done that. Um, to bank the last one down the back, I, I don't know, but he did. Um, possibly because there were very few fences in this race. But there's, generally speaking, he's been an assured jumper in his, in his career. But, but listen, the horse was, was back on point and back on form. And now there's all sorts of bits and pieces you need to take out of this race. Yeah, today. it was a, a very interesting race. Um, you see uh, Santini there being pushed along and Nicky Henderson, we mustn't make this the Nicky Henderson show, but it, it, he, he thought that Aintree would be a track that didn't suit Santini particularly well. We know how well he grinds uh, up the hill at Cheltenham, but yeah, this was, uh, it, it's, it's very interesting Lakeview lad, isn't it? The Mar Marcus Armitage of the Daily Telegraph, former Grand National winner of course, uh, 30 years ago, has a system whereby he likes to tip the Trevor Hemmings horses who didn't go to the sales. The, the implication being that the trainers had said, mm. yeah, don't, don't send this one to the sales. And it's a uh, cloth cap last weekend. I don't know if Marcus tipped them in the paper, and obviously Lakeview lad here. It seems to be a system that's working pretty well. And the way he snapped back on the bridle was, was, was really interesting. Now, had there been more fences in the race, and we're going to discuss that later, then doubtless you'd have seen a better effort from Frodon. This isn't his bag yep. when the premium's not on jumping and he gets taken on for the lead and he got taken on by Native River, who ran respectably enough. As for Santini, isn't this redolent of his first time out effort last year, which was marked out by a real kind of laziness, almost listlessness? Well, that's sort of, I sort of see why they didn't want to run him in the Labrooks Trophy first time out. Yeah, I, I, I see that. I, I think that Santini, people, someone on Twitter said he'd be the sort of if he were a person, he'd turn up at nine o'clock, leave at five, wouldn't go to the Christmas party, you know, that that he would he would he would do the necessary but would distance himself from going above and beyond. Mm. I think that's really unfair with Santini. Yes, he's lazy, but he's game, isn't he? He mm. you know, I mean He keeps going. Look at look at look at his efforts at Cheltenham last year. And I, I think that a, a, a flat layout doesn't suit him particularly well to be honest we know we know Kempton doesn't suit him from when he ran in the the Feltham a couple of years ago and I think Cheltenham's his place. Lady Lad's interesting because 
I tipped Lakeview Lad in the National a couple of years ago, and I know that the trainer said that the drying ground was against him at Aintree. I actually watched him like a hawk, and I didn't think he took to the test with mm. a great deal of enthusiasm, but I'd be very interested to see what, what um, Nick Alexander would say. Well, I'm hoping that Nick Alexander is, is with us. He is. Nick, good morning. Good morning, Nick. Um, thanks very much for joining us. I, it, it's a really difficult race to get a handle on yesterday, but you would know better than, than us what sort of form you thought you had the horse in going in and what, what it sort of means, really. Yeah, but, well, I thought the horse was in very good form. He, he wasn't really right all of last season. And whilst he did have... He had a tough time earlier this autumn just with a couple of operations and things, but he's... Uh, I did think he was absolutely bouncing uh, for, for yesterday, and everything was in his favour. Really, I think the flat track helped him. I think, uh, I think um, the ground was uh, was also key. He loves; he's very, very effective on on very soft ground. So the ground in his favour, the horse in good form. Where does it leave you now? Because he's he's going to be quite a tricky horse to pick your way through the season with. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, yesterday was really just to set him up for the Royal America Weatherby on Boxing Day, but um, that's out the window now. He had a hard race yesterday. That would come too soon anyway. He'd want longer than that. So we'd, uh, I think we have to try and find uh, maybe something like the Cotswold Chase at Cheltenham at the end of January would be a nice race to run him in. He ran very well uh, when narrowly beaten in the Ultima. There. So, uh, yeah, that's probably where we'd go. And that would be a probable rematch with... Uh with Santini as well, so that would add a bit more, add a bit more spice to that. Yeah, I'd love, uh, I'd love the thought of that. Yeah, no, that's hope we get, both get there in, in one piece. It was, uh, it was, they had some battle up the home straight yesterday, so it would be great to see, uh, great to see them doing it around Chelton. And as Dave said, you know, the, the horse was really well fancied for the Grand National a, a couple of seasons ago. Is it your view that, that he didn't really take to it, or would you, would you consider having another bash? Um, I'd be delighted to have another bash. Um, I think, to be honest, his chance was really ruined by the full start that year because he was in the ideal position in the original start, and then he got trapped very, very wide uh, when they restarted it. And he, it, that, combined with the ground being slightly faster than ideal, just meant he, you know, he, he just never landed a blow. And uh, Henry wisely pulled him up. Quite, quite a long way out, but I think he took to the fences all right. Actually, I don't. I, I think he jumped them fine. And in terms of of your yard, I sort of get the feeling from just you know, watching the horses run that you feel like you've you feel like you've got them in a better place now than perhaps you did for quite a bit of last season. Yeah, they were they were mostly okay last season. Lately, lad had two specific problems. Um, oh. Sorry, that was my alarm going. Um, he, had, he had two specific specific problems last season, which just meant that he was very, very hard to train and get absolutely 100%. Um, and, uh, you know, we had, we had plenty of winners last season, and uh, they're, they're continuing to go well. We've got a great team who work incredibly hard. And your, your daughter, Lucy, has uh, been in the wars of late. How's she getting on? How's the recovery going? Uh, she's... Uh, She's pretty sore, but she's uh, retained her sense of humour, which is great. She's uh, she's uh, she, it, it's it's just lovely to have her home out of hospital, and uh, she'll take a while to get over it. But um, she's in good spirits and is a great support to to me.
Well, that's that's good to hear, and I'm sure she was similarly buoyed by your your double yesterday. Well done with Lake, you and well done also with with Clan Legend, who at ten years old still got plenty to offer by the looks of it. Yeah, he, uh, both both them ten year olds, and both of them brand career bests, and uh, um, I, it's sort of the way we train them. We don't get many good horses, so we we look after them very carefully when they come along. Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti Equuel Dubai. Well, after Professor Caroline Tisdall and Evan Williams, I'm even getting battered by the Tipstar contestants this morning. But fair play, the My Bite thing didn't really work out. I'm very pleased to say that I'm rejoined here in the Luck on Sunday studio by a man who was here first in January 2019 when he suggested to me that his memoirs might make quite a nice book. Well, the book has finally arrived, thanks to lockdown. Here it is, Pressing My Luck, Memoirs of a Fleet Street Veteran by Colin McKenzie, formerly of the Daily Mail, and uh, The Infancy of the Racing Post, which features quite heavily in this book as well. I just said, just in time for Christmas, but lockdown's granted you a nice gift, Colin. It has. I mean, I was looking forward to the Olympics. I was looking forward to the Euros. I was looking forward to uh, Aintree. And all that was denied me. And out of sheer boredom, I thought I'd better sit down and try and get 100,000 words out. And amazingly, in exactly the 12 weeks of the original lockdown between uh, March and June, I managed it. And of course, in your journalistic career, you, you were always being told, you've only got this much to write. You've only got this many pars. You've only got this. Then you've actually got to fill 100,000. How different a discipline was it? Oh, it's quite different. and. Um, it's extraordinary trying to look back at your career and remember what went on because uh, rather like um, I think will be recognised by many people of my age, you can remember things that happened in the 60s rather better than the things you can remember in the noughties. And my early career on the old Delhi Express um, came back to me just like that. Mm. But looking up and checking on horse racing results and uh, interviews I'd done in the 2000s, was much harder. Well, we talk quite a bit about about Ronnie Biggs and your your part in tracking down the the great train robber in in South America when you were last here. What I hadn't quite realised was yet how instrumental you were in the early days of the of the Racing Post and what an enjoyable period that must have been for everyone who was involved with it. Oh, it was thrilling. Uh, Bruff Scott rang me when I was on the Daily Mail and said, "Would I like to come and be uh, on the new paper, which was uh, launching?" On, originally on about 1st of January 1986 and I, I had always wanted to be writing about racing. It had been my hobby ever since I was uh, misled by a great friend of mine at Oxford and given a betting slip and he wrote out four horses for me. He said, give me two pounds, 15 shillings. I said, what for? He said, I said, he said that's a five bob Yankee. And of course, luck would have it, they all won and I was hooked for life. Um, so when Bruff rang up in 1985, I absolutely grabbed it with both hands. Uh, I'd been quite friendly with Peter O'Sullivan and Clive Graham on the Express and other great racing correspondents, and they had a job for life. There was very little prospect of a 22-year-old ever getting into that role, and so I did lots of other things uh, prior to the invitation from Bruff. And starting up a new newspaper was absolutely thrilling. I mean, the first worry was, would it, would it survive? And he uh, assured me that Sheikh Mohammed, who was backing the project, had limitless funds. And so I decided I would take the chance. 
And it, you know, it was a chance well taken because then you moved on to, to the Daily Mail. But uh, one of the extracts I was most interested in was that you started a diary on the, on the Racing Post, which had a sort of limited lifespan because you realized um, how delicate the egos and senses of humor were of people in, in horse racing. Uh, well, that's true. Actually, the diary was three times a week initially, uh, which was quite, quite a, a lot to fill. Quite a yeah. lot to fill on a whole page. And gradually over the first year, it got reduced to once a week, and by which time I had become the news editor uh, of the paper. There was a bit of a shake-up uh, after less than a year because um, things hadn't gone quite as planned. And uh, sadly, Graham Rock, the founding editor, was sacked. Uh, and Michael Harris, who'd been running, uh, had been the editor of Pacemaker, was brought in. And a slightly gentler tone was adopted and slightly new design. It was considered too tabloidy by the racing public, uh, who were very used to the format of the sporting life, mm. rather like the form lines of the sporting life, and didn't really like this brash new paper. So we had a complete makeover. But you're right, the, uh, the diary column <laughs> was upsetting too many people to last three days a week, that was for certain. I mean, do you think you could do that now? Do you think you could get a good diary, diary back in a, in a racing paper? It's doubtful. There's too small a population and you're bound to upset people. Um, and uh, egos are very sensitive in the racing world. I mean, I will tell one story. Um, Michael Dickinson had just started up training at Mountain. And um, uh, this was a big move from great national hunt trainer he'd become. And uh, he decided for some unknown reason to adopt a rather 19th century approach to the lads. <laughs> And he wanted them to drink in the pub that's actually on the Manton estate and refused them permission to go into Marlborough. Well, this was sort of echoes of wonderful conspiracies going back uh, into the 19th century and uh, written by my good friend Paul Mathieu, if you've ever yes, uh, he's, read he's those Yes, he's been on books. the show, yeah. Fabulous. Uh, anyway, so I, I said that uh, Manton was becoming Stalag Manton <laughs> and he had a massive sense of humour failure and banned the Racing Post from coming down and doing interviews there. So that was the first signs that maybe people <laughs> lacked something of a sense of humour. And then uh, moving on to the on to the Daily Mail latterly, uh, how sorry I, I sensed your frustration coming through as to how you were getting a little bit sort of squeezed for for space toward the toward the back end of your career. Do you think with a potentially a growing interest in the sport, more interest in the sport now on, on television, more people during lockdown betting on the sport. Do you, do you sense that there's any, any way that racing can increase its market share again, or do you think that's gone now? I think, unfortunately, sports editors in general, not everyone, but sports editors in general are completely soccer-centric. And football is God. Rugby, some way down the line. Golf, they all play golf, so they love golf. There are very few sports editors I can think of who actually like racing, and most of them would like to chuck all the cards out. Cards take up an enormous amount of space. I think there is too much racing, and this squeezes the amount the poor racing correspondent can get into the paper, because in the mail, for example, you're probably going to get one page. And if there are five race meetings, that means the amount of uh, copy is negligible. And just it looking at the at the front cover of this book and you've got Biggs arrested as the main headline it is the you know, signature story of your career uh, locating Ronnie Biggs um, how do you think your life would have been different if that hadn't happened I've no idea uh, you take 
stories as they come, obviously. If I'd never found out about Ronald Biggs, I'd have probably stayed on the Express. I had just completed a, uh, um, a term in New York as uh, one of the, we had four New American, North American correspondents at the time. Lord Beaverbrook, who died in 1963, loved to have enormous numbers of reporters and photographers on his staff. It was a sort of signature of the Express in the 50s, 60s and 70s. Um, the largest mid-market paper, broadsheet, of course, and he just loved having that. And I'd have probably stayed in New York. Um, maybe my wife and children would have come out and joined me, and that did happen to other colleagues of mine. Mm. So it's impossible to know. But I was very lucky during my career. I attracted quite a lot of big, big stories, mm. not just the Ronnie Big story. Um, and somehow, uh, you can call it luck or you can call it skill, I would have found my niche somewhere. Whether I'd have ever become a racing correspondent is open to doubt. Um, why do you think you were good at what you did? What was it that made you a, a good journalist? <laughs> well, it's hardly for me to say. I, I really don't know. Um, Mr. Yates, who's just occupied this chair, might say he was rubbish. <laughs> All I know. Uh, I was able to turn a smidgen of information into a good story. That's one thing I would credit myself with. I mean, I'll give you a tiny example. Somebody uh, rang me the day before Cheltenham and told me that um, a certain Irish trainer had had to go to the uh, Customs and Excise and pay an enormous half million pound VAT bill. Otherwise, he wasn't going to be able to run his horse, Destriero, the following day. <laughs> and uh, so Mr. Noel Furlong paid half a million quid to be present to watch Destriero run in the Supreme Novices Hurdle. And if you hadn't backed it before, then you were silly because it was a certainty, according to him. Yeah, and so it proved, and he absolutely bolted up and beat a pretty good field. I think Granville again was second or second, third. Yeah. Yes, yes. It was a it was a very good race and a very good win. Interestingly, he only ever won uh, won one more race in his entire career, Destriero. Gamble well so landed. Well landed on that day, yes. And so, where can we? Where can we find Pressing My Luck? All good bookstores, etc.? <laughs> no, unfortunately, I've gone down the Amazon route. I say unfortunately. I have written a couple of other books which were published in the, in, in the traditional way. These days, uh, the book went to a couple of agents and a couple of publishers this summer, and they all said, well, we love it. It's full of magnificent stories, but we don't think it's commercial. Mm. And publishers are having a very, very hard time. I mean, Bruff, Scott, bless him, wanted to publish it with, through Racing Post Books, and they've had to merge with another company there uh, because of uh, lack of resources. Um, so in the end, uh, I went down the Amazon route, found a New Zealand lady publisher who uh, has published 200 books with Amazon. She edited it, and considering she knew nothing about racing, she did a pretty good job, yeah. I think. Uh, and it is available on Amazon 9.99, 5.99 on Kindle. Oh, perfect, uh, perfect. <laughs> well, all the best with it. And before you go, Colin, Lord Lucan. Right. Well, I did, I think, promise you, you two did. years ago. You did. I well, hadn't forgotten. Had you read, have you read the Lucan stuff? So, so, so where are we now with Lucan? Well, I suspect he is now dead, but I do describe how I went down to South Africa, spent four weeks trying to find Lord Lucan. I had a very good tip-off, which is described in the book, um, albeit an unwilling tip-off from somebody rather connected with his associates and friends. Uh, I even went to um, what's the place is now called Maputo, but it was called Lorenzo Marquez in those days, which was capital of Mozambique, where he was a regular every three or four months at a particular bar, having collected money 
from a bank around the corner and I showed his picture to the barman. He said, Isu, Isu é um homem, which is, this is the man in Portuguese, my very bad Portuguese. And um, I never found him, unlike uh, Mr. Biggs, he wasn't willing to be found. But the idea that he fell on his sword two days after allegedly murdering uh, the nanny, nanny of his children, I believe to be still rubbish, and so does Scotland Yard. And you can read more about that in this book, uh, Pressing My Luck by Colin McKenzie, memoir of a Fleet Street veteran. Colin, thank you very much. Thank you, Nick. I wasn't going to forget Luke, and don't worry about that. <laughs>
banning sponsorship, for example, of sport will have a lot of unintended consequences and we need to be make sure that all stakeholders sit down, we're around the table and we discuss these measures and we really get into what are we doing here, what are we trying to achieve. We want to reform gambling, we know that, we want to modernise it, but fundamentally we have to protect those that suffer from gambling disorder. One case is too many and it's vital that we take these measures but equally we must balance that with millions and millions of people enjoy betting safely and this is a very very important point. Uh, the interesting note as regards the raft of, uh, of measures that might be brought in I think is that the idea that there could be really stringent affordability checks on, on punters wanting to, wanting to bet. What, what would your reaction be to that? Look, it's very important that we do assess affordability and as a company and as an industry we have taken measures and we particularly look at customers who are predisposed to spending more amounts. We have to make sure that they can afford to spend this. I think what's really important here is, as the, the Gambling Commission recently announced the affordability consultation, that we get, we, we again use an evidence-based approach putting low thresholds in would be a blunt approach to this and it would have a lot of unintended consequences particularly for the racing sector and you know racing gets us a big levy uh, earned from from betting and low th thresholds would affect hundreds of thousands of customers and potentially stop them betting and that wouldn't really move us forward as we want to focus on what the real issue at hand is here we want to minimize gambling disorder this would be a blunt approach that would impact vast sums of customers who enjoy gambling safely. So how do you minimise gambling disorder, Connor? How do you play a big part in that? How do you lead on that? Well, we have been leading, uh, both as a business and as an industry. We've taken numbers of measures. We've worked with the Betting and Gaming Council to introduce these. In the last few years, we've introduced a whistle-to-whistle -whistle ban uh, for TV to restrict the number of adverts. It's also important we've been investing lots of money internally in our business to do two things. One, to work to how can we improve the identification of problem gambling and how do we interact more with these customers. Just to give you some stats, last month we had 200,000 interactions with our customers on Safer Gambling, which ended up with 10,000 customer accounts being reviewed and 5,000 accounts where we took measures which we think are appropriate to safeguard customers and either to restrict spend or to, to work with them to make sure they introduce deposit limits. These are important measures. We must take these measures to make sure that we are furthering and reducing and minimizing harm and this is really important it has to be a data-led approach and an insight problem gambling is incredibly complex it's highly nuanced and when you spend time with people who have lived experience you really do get to understand how complex this is and blunt measures will not move us forward here what will ultimately end up happening is we will push people offshore to black uh, to, to black market operators but we want this is a regulated business a regulated industry that contributes lots in taxes and to other sports and sectors and it's really important that we do focus on the problem we avoid cosmetic gestures and we really get into all ideas are on the table but they have to be evidence-based
But people will say that this is a, a cosmetic process now, a PR drive now to try and project a better image of the betting industry because the image of the betting industry has become so bad within wider society. You cannot pick up the Daily Mail each day without a, a negative headline about a specific gambling addiction, about VIP schemes, about big corporations, including your own, luring people in with the office of VIP schemes and then not looking after punters properly. I'm not saying each and every one of these stories uh, you know, is, is absolutely, uh, you know, it has, has absolutely copper-bottom veracity, but you know that the, the image of gambling that's being portrayed to the wider public at the moment. Nick, look, there's some very important points here. Firstly, as a sector, we haven't always put our best foot forward. I acknowledge that, the sector acknowledges that. But equally, you have to look at the measures that we have introduced, both um, from a mandatory perspective and regulatory perspective. We've withdrawn, uh, credit cards are now banned. That was a great step forward by the Gambling Commission. We have increased uh, the funding into research, education and treatment uh, to problem gambling. That's another step forward. And we're going to ramp that up to significant, almost 100 million by the end of 2023. These are really important measures. I think it's also important within Flutter, we've conducted a number of prevalence surveys with customers uh, who bet and those that don't. And while uh, the vast majority, there is no clamour for stringent regulations but when you really push customers they do acknowledge that because of this negative perception that maybe regulations need tightened we welcome this we want to be engaged with all the stakeholders as the gambling review comes along to improve not just the image of gambling but make real difference to customers particularly those that minimize harm that's what this is about it's also about making sure that the legislation ref reflects what we do today in, a, in an era when technology has powered gambling and, and betting and social media and we have to really make sure we're putting our best foot forward here Let's talk about the, the return for racing. A, a lot's been talked about what is a fair return for, for horse racing from the betting industry. And the Times this week, Matt Lawton uh, wrote a piece in the Times where he quoted John Gosden extensively. And John Gosden had done interviews with us earlier in the year when he talked about you know, racing needs to get its, get its house in order and levy re reform must happen now or the sport will die. And there was a, a, a turnover versus a revenue a table at the bottom. Um, British racing betting turnover is, is 15.6 billion but gives only 86.3 million back to the sport. Compare that to Australia where it's 9.4 billion but contributes 247.5 million back to the sport. Um, what do you believe as CEO of Flutter UK and Ireland is a fairer return for the sport? Well, Nick, I'd like to give you two perspectives. Firstly, I'd like to give you the perspective of my, of my role as CEO of Flutter UK and Ireland, but I'm also a racing fan, and I'm also a, a part owner in four modest horses that are trained by Richard Fahey and Dave O'Meara here up in Yorkshire. So I, have, I, I, I sit on both sides of the fence and look at this. In terms of, from my CEO perspective, let's be quite clear, racing, like broader society, has really suffered as a result of COVID. This is the second biggest spectator sport in the United Kingdom. Again, we welcome the levy review uh, that's being led by Joe Samaria Smith. We think this is a very important time for racing. And as a racing fan, I think, and a chief executive of a betting company, we have to really use this. COVID has highlighted, you know, the funding shortages. But let's really put this into perspective. Racing needs broader reform. 
it, there's four key stakeholders at the moment. There's the government bodies, there's the race course groups, there is also um, the, the horsemen, and you know, then there's the media rights. But bookmaking needs to be involved in this. Historically, there was an, it's been more of an adversarial relationship between racing and betting. It needs to be a partnership that sets racing on the front foot. And within Flutter, we've got a number of ideas and proposals that we would like to sit down with racing and really look at this. And, you know, from our perspective, what we want to do is we need to, uh, using the levy reform, we need to get alignment on the funding framework. What does this look like? You know, we need to align the levy and media rights payments for, to create sustainable future for racing. We need to look at how do we co-create a customer-led strategy that looks at the different narratives of the seasons. You know, and what, it was interesting listening to you guys earlier today on the, on, on the show. You know, racing has to cater for the novice beginner who enjoys a day out at the races. And wasn't it fantastic to see people back and racing this week and hearing people roar in Politologue home yesterday. That's what we need. We need spectators back and we need that to grow. But we have to cater for them. The third point I would make is we need to look at how do we look at the scheduling and how do we really understand what are the value drivers for horse racing. This is critical. Bookmaking has significant sums of data based on our customers. We want to work with racing to look at the scheduling. We want to look at the value drivers, times of races, the number uh, of runners in races. These are all important steps. And the final piece I would add is we've got to look at being more innovative with our products. We have to utilize our data and the insight that we have that we have from an online perspective and from the, the race courses. How do we come together to build a great future for racing? That's the real question here. Bookmaking and will invest in racing and Flutter is prepared to invest in racing. In 2019, we spent invested 72 million in racing from levy, media rights and sponsorship. We sponsored the entire card at Sandown yesterday. We want to grow this sport. But we have to do this together. But it's vital that we do it together as a t but Connor, just to give that a bit of perspective, between, between July and September, your company recorded more than £1.3 billion of global revenue. So yes, you're, you're contributing, but the argument from many within the sport is that you should be contributing more, given particularly how well you've done during this, this COVID period where, where people have been betting an awful lot on, on horse racing. Well, there's a number of points uh, to make there. Firstly, Nick, we're a global organisation. You know, we've got four international divisions, Australia, US, uh, UK and Ireland, and obviously from um, also our international business. But I would point out, when we moved out of uh, the initial lockdown and racing came back, and also when the betting shops were closed, we increased our investment in media rights. The, our, our business reflects a broad range of sports it also recognizes online gaming we want to invest more in racing but we need to sit down and have that conversation with racing bodies and what that looks like it's not a case of the bookmaking industry just can't be expected to write a check and the status quo is maintained that won't be sufficient i think we have to put our best foot forward here we have to get into the room we have to build partnerships and really invest in creating a sustainable future for racing that's what this is really about so are you saying it's not just about product? It's not just about volume of product. You don't think that a pilot high, sell it cheap model, just more races, more betting opportunities, is necessarily the right way to build a funding model for the sport. Is that what you're saying? 
I, I completely agree. We don't know. We have to look at what are the, the, the value drivers of this industry. You know, Dave alluded to it. I was sitting yesterday as a racing fan watching the Tingle Creeks, watching the novice chase before that. And, you know, there's so much great racing back to back. You can't turn away for a second. Is that right? You know, we learned a lot this year when COVID uh, enforced us to look at our racing schedule and we looked at it differently. And from the period of June and September when we had racing, additional days racing on terrestrial TV, the ITV races generated three and a half times more revenue. That results in greater profits and that is what is invested in racing and that's where we have to get to. We have to look at what are the drivers for racing here. Racing and betting are symbiotic. You cannot separate them. We have to work together and if we do that we will generate more for racing and put racing in a long-term sustainable footing. What, what I want to get, drill down into is, is the mechanics of how a better deal, a better levy deal might work, Connor. So if you if you try and try and be impartial for just a second and try and try and speak as a racing fan, how would it work? How would this collaborative process work to get racing a better figure than the figure they come to at the moment for, for annual levy? How do they get up to that sort of 200 million mark? Well, first of all, we have to look at how racing is currently funded. So you have the levy and you also have uh, media rights yeah. and they're two separate payments. W one is based on turnover, one is based on gross profits. So they, they aren't aligned, you know, and what we have to look at is how do we get the alignment uh, there and how do we engage in the process? The levy review will happen. Has bookmaking got a seat at that? It's bookmaking being involved to ask how do we come together to develop this? And I think I will put my, my hat, fan hat on and think, well, you look at the sport, you look at the range of opportunities to grow it. You look at the, the, the big opportunity is the schedule. You, you look at the, the Saturdays, Nick, during the summertime in particular, when you've got such crowded fixture lists, it really does reduce the impact of racing. And we've worked, our colleagues, my colleagues and Paddy Power have worked with HRI, a horse race in Ireland, and we've seen real changes been implemented over there around the scheduling of race times. Uh, and this has benefited horse racing in Ireland and has also benefited racing in total. And I think that's what we have to do. We cannot think that things can continue as is that, and that's how we're going to grow the sport. What we need to do is we need to sit down, we need to work out how do we fund racing? What is the framework for that? How do we get joint aligned goals that make sure that racing is the beneficiary? Because if both racing and the betting sector both benefit from horse racing, we both win and that puts racing on a better footing. Connor, have you just advocated a, a, a turnover model as recommended by many senior figures within, within horse racing? What I've said is, Nick, we, need, we can't dismiss either model. We need to look at it and we need to look at what is the best way forward. Uh, for racing and for the betting industry. How are we going to grow racing? Because that's what the critical point here is. We need to work out what is the best point for us to move forward to put racing on a sustainable future footing. Luck on Sunday. Proudly sponsored by Albasti Equiwell Dubai.